If you would take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 7. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7. We're going to look together this morning at verses 7 through 12. I have uh, a reminder for the church this morning and good news for those who may not know. There is a good and faithful God in heaven who is kind toward us, who is pleased to grant us the request of our heart as we bring them before him. Think about that. If I announced to you this morning that Amazon was giving everything away, you'd shut, our internet would crash in 15 seconds here, right? And what I'm saying to you this morning is that the God of heaven has promised that as his people, praying in accordance with his will, coming before him to make our requests known, that he takes special joy in meeting those requests. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse number 7. As you find your way there in your copy of God's Word, would you join me in standing as we read God's holy word together? Matthew chapter 7, verse number 7. This is Jesus speaking here. The Bible says, keep asking and it will be given to you. Keep searching and you will find. Keep knocking and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who searches finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. What man among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever others do to you, or do, or whatever, rather, you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. This is the law and the prophets. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Jesus says, the one who asks receives. Clearly, in the context of Jesus' statement, he intends, at a minimum, prayer. Prayer as a part of our communion, our fellowship with God. In fact, there's a certain repetition about verses 7 and 8. Jesus is insisting on this principle. Keep asking. Don't stop, and it will be given to you. Keep searching. Again, don't stop, and you will find. Keep knocking, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who searches finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be open. Jesus says, in essence, pray, and then pray, and then pray some more. Pray, pray, and pray. We've had a number of opportunities to talk about the spiritual discipline of prayer in our series in the Sermon on the Mount. And I hope there have been some moments that stand out to you that have been helpful and fruitful for you in your, in your journey. I think that probably a part of a conversation that I heard more response from than anything else was our conversation about how we tend to compartmentalize our life. We tend to say, and I, I hear this often, I'm doing well in certain areas of my life, but my prayer life is not where I'd like it to be. Often I hear, you know, I'm, I'm really passionate about reading my Bible and I'm spending time there, but my prayer life is not where it needs to be. And the reality is that if your prayer life is not healthy, 
then, then nothing else can really be right. It's the lifeblood that fuels those other disciplines that God has granted us to walk faithfully with him. If your Bible reading time is not prayerful, it, it won't be that warm-hearted time of devotion. There'll be lots of information transferred, but it will not be transformational in your life. You may be serving in a variety of capacities. You may be ministering to certain communities or even within the context of our church. But if there's a prayerlessness about your acts of service, it will be found to be wood, hay, and stubble in the day of judgment, burned up and of no use because there is not that warm-hearted devotional aspect to what God has called you to do in that particular area of your life. We simply cannot function as Christian people apart from the discipline of prayer. Jesus says, keep seeking and asking and knocking. Now, one of the ways that we sort of dismiss ourselves from this is we, we make reference to 1 Thessalonians 5.17, we pray without ceasing. And there is a, certainly a sense in which we are, we are always in a state of prayer and fellowship, listening for the Spirit in fellowship and communion with God, making our requests known often in subtle ways throughout the course of our day and even across the span of our life. But there must be a time for us as individuals and even as a body when we clasp our hands and we bow our heads and we bend our knees and we get before God persistently praying that God would intervene and act on our behalf. Jesus says, keep seeking, keep asking, keep knocking, and the door will be open to you. Seek and ask and knock. The one who asks receives. This is a word from a God who always keeps his promises. Next week's text, we're going to begin to look at uh, the, the two roads. What, what I believe in verses 13 and following to be the drawing down of the Sermon on the Mount, I've, I call it the invitation part of the sermon. It's obvious to me in next week's text that Jesus is coming to an end, but it might just be that Jesus is doing like most Baptist preachers and he ends twice, right? Like he's getting to the end and then he gets to the real end. Like the preacher says, in conclusion, that always means we got 15 minutes to go, right? <laughs> and it may be that Jesus is here answering some of our objections to what he's taught in the Sermon on the Mount up until this point, right? Like, if you think back across what we've discussed in the Sermon on the Mount, for those of you who are new to us, maybe there's a level of familiarity with the Sermon on the Mount. But in, in, the gist of just some of what Jesus has said is this. Even if you don't kill anybody, you still have hatred in your heart and so are in violation of God's word. And, and we might object to that saying, Jesus, I'm good with the no murder thing, but how in the world am I supposed to rid my heart of bitterness and hostility? Jesus, I get the externals. I'm on board with those things. They're helpful and needed in society. But how am I supposed to rid my mind and my evil heart of immoral thoughts, impure thoughts? How am I supposed to master that? Jesus makes it clear that he doesn't come along to nullify so much of what the Old Testament requires of us. Rather, he comes to expand on that. So what Israel never managed to do in thousands of, Israel, thousands of years of Israelite history until the time of Jesus, he now wants us to do and then add some on to that. Lord, how am I supposed to master what you have required of us in all of these verses? And the answer is here provided in verses 7 and 8. You keep asking and seeking and knocking and the door will be open to you and you will find and you will receive. 
The answer to so many of our sinful shortcomings is the discipline of prayer. Jesus himself has taught us in the Sermon on the Mount that we should pray this way. God, forgive us our sins. Do not bring us into temptation, but protect us from the evil one. Help us to walk worthy of our calling. So often sin is the great hindrance in our prayer life, and that works in more ways than one. The psalmist said, if we regard iniquity in our heart, he will not hear our prayer. That is your active prayer to God. Bowing your knees, clasping your hands, and voicing your word of prayer to God is hindered by your harboring iniquity in your heart. James sort of points us to a truth that flows forth from that in James 5, saying the prayers of the righteous man availeth much, indicating that our commitment to righteousness has the effect of enhancing our power and effectiveness in prayer. If you regard iniquity in your heart, God does not hear your prayer. Peter tells us that for husbands who mistreat their wives, there oughtn't be an expectation that God would hear well their prayers, that mistreating your spouse can be a way of hindering your prayers. Husbands, and I think the same can be said for wives, you should have no expectation that a God who has looked kindly and graciously on all of those he has leadership over would look kindly or graciously upon you who have so mistreated those who have been given to your spiritual leadership. The mistreatment of those in your life, the mistreatment of your family can have the effect of impeding your prayer life. But probably even before we get the opportunity to get to that place, sin has a way of affecting our prayer life, our prayer life in that it leads us in the other direction. Either it will bend our heart toward the things of this world and away from the things of God so that we're praying in a direction that does not cohere with God's will for our life, or it just curbs prayer altogether. It is a difficult thing to go to the prayer closet and ask that God's will would be done when we are actively pursuing the violation of God's will in our life. Prayer is one of the, uh, sin is one of the surest ways to curb prayer in your personal life. You want to know how you can do what is practically impossible, what Jesus lays out in the Sermon on the Mount? You keep seeking and you keep asking and you keep knocking. How do we do the Sermon on the Mount? We seek and we ask and we knock. We pray that God would endow us with the presence of his Holy Spirit that would enable in us more than we can achieve on our own. I, I preach every Sunday, every, this morning, this building is filled with people who cannot in their natural ability do what this passage requires of us to do. But I preach on behalf of a God who is glad to freely give his spirit to all who would ask that we would then have the spiritual capacity to meet the standard that he's established for us. Aren't you glad for that this morning? How do we do it? What do we do? We seek and we ask and we knock. There's a second principle here in verses 9 through 11. Verse 9 says, What man among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God delights in giving good gifts to his children. Yes. Think, think about that. Yes. 
God, who has the universe at his disposal, takes joy. It's fun for him. He is satisfied in himself at giving good gifts to his children. It really is a remarkable thing, right? Here Jesus uses the illustration of a stone and bread, a snake and fish. In Jesus' day in first century Israel, that small loaf of bread that a Jewish family might bake for themselves would, would look very similar to those whitened and rounded stones that are common in Palestine even to this day. Fish that were consumed by most of the citizens of Israel in Jesus' day looked much like a snake. Any, any father asked for bread by a son is not going to give him a rock. No father asked for a fish is going to give his son a snake. Jesus says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your sons, how much more our Father who is in heaven. I've confessed to you before, I'm having to come off of this a little bit in recent years, but I've confessed to you before that I'm not a person who takes a great deal of delight in Christmas. Now, I'm in Christmas in what God did in sending his son. I'm all about that. It's all the stuff we've attached to it that's kind of a drag for me, right? There are probably personal baggage and personal experiences that have contributed to that sort of feeling toward the holiday season. But I find myself, as the years go by and as my kids get old enough to really enjoy Christmas, that I don't hate it as bad as I maybe used to. Don't tell them. <laughs> but th th there's a certain delight in seeing our, our kids, in my case, my sons, receive gifts and rejoice in that. You know, when they're little, they get all that stuff, and then they play with the box, right? And I'm like, see, Christmas is not all that, you know? But now they're big, and, and there's a special delight they take in the stuff that they get. Now, if I, who am evil, am able to rejoice over the giving of gifts to my sons, how much more does our Father in perfect righteousness rejoice in giving these good gifts? I've experienced as a dad, giving gifts gets more complicated as the years go by, and maybe not even in the traditional ways that you may be thinking. I have a son as of January who is 16 years old. Yep. <laughs> Which makes me feel remarkably old. But it's especially big. It's always a big deal when you turn 16. But it's an especially big deal for this kid because he gets his driver's license and the kid has always been fascinated with cars. Yes, Miss Fonda, that's exactly right. When he was small, there were two sets of matchbox cars. There was the cars that he would actually play with, which matched the real year, make, and model of actual cars that he saw on the road. And then there was the stack that he called the Neric cars, which was short for generic, and he would not play with them because they did not match the year, make, and model of real cars that he saw on the street. They were only good for props around which he would drive the real cars with the year, the make, and the model. The, the local newspaper sent a reporter to come and to write a story about my oldest child at three years old, walked around the streets of our little town, and he could identify the year and the make and the model of all of those cars. 
It was a big deal. Like in the night, you're on a four-lane highway. There are headlights in the distance. At four or five, he could tell you the year, the make, and the model of the car. And when I tell you the kid is fascinated with cars, I mean the kid is fascinated with cars. And now he wants a car. <laughs> but because of this fascination with cars, he doesn't just want any car. I mean, he has expensive taste. And he really likes European cars, right? Now, there are times when there are difficult decisions with regards to what we give our children. Sometimes giving gifts to our children can be managed in a way that is unwise. And in my case, it would be irresponsible of me to give my son the car. That, now, I ain't knocking European cars. Y'all don't be mad at me. But I'm telling you, the car this kid wants, he ain't getting. <laughs> and it would be unwise to do so. Sometimes it's clear, like in the case of a 16-year-old that wants a car that costs six figures. But sometimes it's not so clear. And sometimes we don't steward that responsibility well as parents either. Just a side note here. Behind every knucklehead boy or girl, there's a mom and dad who have enabled them by not exercising wisdom in giving good gifts and withholding at times gifts that would be uh, an impediment or hurtful to them. Behind every adult boy or girl still living in mom's basement and unable to get it together, there's moms and dads who have failed to exercise discernment in their young life and to help them to learn how to flourish, to thrive, and to grow independent of mom and dad. There's some difficult decisions that have to be made there. But, but if we even move beyond that, if I was able to determine, if, if I was able to know with absolute certainty that giving in this case this gift was wise, just to be frank, I don't have the means to provide that gift. Sometimes we don't have the wisdom to know what to give and what not to give. And then there are times when we really want to give a specific gift and we just don't have the ability. Now, bottom line is, if I had it, I wouldn't give it. But that's another story for another day. But what Jesus is saying in this passage and drawing on the experience of family life and the father-son dynamic is that not only does God have the wisdom to know just the right gift, but he has the power and the means to provide just the right gift. And he has a willing and joyous heart in the giving of that gift. God has the wisdom, the power, and is more than willing to give us good gifts, even more than our earthly fathers. Our Father in heaven delights in giving us what is best for us to receive or to have. Aren't you glad for that this morning? Now, I know that may not be newsflash material for some of you that have been walking with Jesus for a long time, but it's a, it's a helpful reminder for this pastor this morning that there's a God who is looking over my life and granting, granting me the, the very things that I need, those things which are essential to my good, to his glory and the betterment of his kingdom. Verse 12 in our passage is the best-known verse in this passage, maybe the best-known verse in the Bible. When we title it the way we do, it may be the best-known verse or concept in the world. This is where the Bible sets forth, where Jesus sets forth what we know as the golden rule. 
It's interesting to me that although most everyone knows what the golden rule is, almost no one knows book, chapter, and verse for the golden rule. It actually occurs two times, one here in Matthew 7 and 12, and then later in the Gospel of Luke. This is, in a way, the summation of Jesus' ethical teaching for kingdom people. Some variation of this teaching occurs in virtually every world religion. Society in general has affirmed that there's a certain goodness about what Jesus says here in our passage. Verse 12 says, Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. This is the law and the prophets. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I can remember a number of opportunities to sit down as a family and discuss this principle. And I can remember one specific day sitting down and looking into the face of a four-year-old boy who could not understand what Jesus was requiring of us in this passage. And he kept insisting, Daddy, he already did it to me, so I did it to him. (laughs) This is not what Jesus intends. That's our implementation oftentimes of the golden rule, but that's not what Jesus is driving at in our passage. Again, the way the world operates, the the world's ethic is do unto others as they have done unto you, or as one man said, do unto others before they have a chance to do unto you. That's the way the world works. But here again, Jesus is calling us to this kingdom ethic that marks us off distinctly from the world around us. We are not like the world around us. We live our lives according to an entirely different code, one established by Jesus in this passage and countless others. Jesus says here, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, I said to you a moment ago that this command occurs again in the Gospel of Luke. We are helped in our interpretation by Luke's account in this instance. Here in verse 12, if you're reading verse 12, the golden rule within the context of this paragraph, you might come away with the impression that we're doing unto others in the hopes that one day we might benefit from their generosity toward us, that we might be kind and benevolent and good to others so that in our hour of darkness they are kind and benevolent and generous unto us. Now, that's what, not what Jesus intends, but there is something about the context that would lead us perhaps to that conclusion if we didn't have a good full understanding of what Jesus is requiring of us. Luke helps us to understand a little better. The context is a little firmer. In fact, the golden rule there is a little more isolated. It reads the same way, but the context is a little different. And it could not be clear there in Luke's gospel that we never do acts of kindness. We never express generosity or thoughtfulness in order that that would be returned to us. In fact, we do it without the expectation that any of our acts of kindness would ever be returned in our favor, which fits consistently, perfectly, with what Jesus has described in the Sermon on the Mount. Yet again, we're called to this different outlook, this different ethic. Now, we said a moment ago, the world says, do unto others as they have done unto you, or some variation of that. And the golden rule is radically different from that, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But think about the number of radical breaks with the ways of this world Jesus has already introduced us to. They're all coupled together with this golden rule concept. The world says, hate your enemy. But Jesus says, love your enemy. And the world says, if someone slaps you on your right cheek, slap him back. But Jesus says to him, turn to him the other cheek also. The world says, if someone seeks to sue you, 
Get a good attorney. But Jesus says, if someone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your cloak as well. The world says, specifically America says, if anyone tries to make you do anything, you insist upon the observance of your rights. But Jesus says, if you are compelled to go one mile, go with him too. The world says if someone offends you or comes against you, if someone hurts you in any way, you retaliate against them. You make them pay. Don't allow anyone to run you over. But Jesus says you pray for those who persecute you and spitefully treat you. The kingdom way is different than the ways of this world. The kingdom way is different from the ways of this world. Jesus says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And then he notes, this is the law and the prophets. In other words, Jesus has drawn down into a single statement all of the obligations that are born forth in God's word. All that God requires of us with respect to loving our neighbor, interacting with those around us, it's all boiled down to this Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. I've thought about this verse and those that I just cited for a long time, and I think think that we're able to draw down in an even perhaps more practical way all of the ethical teachings of Jesus. If you think through those commands, love your enemies, Pray for those who persecute you and spitefully treat you. Do unto others in spite of their treatment to you. Turn the other cheek. It all really boils down to this. Y'all ready? As kingdom people, we hold ourselves to God's standard and we do not allow ourselves to be influenced by the people around us, by the circumstances of our life or our environment in any way. In other words, we embrace responsibility for the decisions that we make. Whether it's in public or private, we walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. We never never give ourselves over to groupthink or a mob mentality. We walk according to the standard of God. I'll go beyond that. In this generation where everyone wants to shift the blame to someone else, bad upbringing, Mom and dad missed the mark. We want to go the, the, the route of some kind of psychoanalysis of every poor decision that we make, find some cop out for ourselves, some way to shift the blame. It's always someone else's fault. What Jesus is calling us to here is to embrace the responsibility for the decisions that we make. We as kingdom people are not to be influenced by what those around us do. That's who we are as kingdom people. So it really doesn't matter if the guy cuts you off in traffic. Or as the kids say, Dad, everyone was doing it. We as kingdom people do unto others as we'd have them do unto us, and we answer all other commands of Jesus without respect to what is swirling in the world around us. We have been called to answer to one. His name is Jesus. Now, again, these are not groundbreaking principles, but I'm telling you, embraced by the people of God, what would it look like for the church with broken and contrite spirits and humility to just confess our sins one to another, to confess them before the world. I'm I'm telling you, in your workplace or at school, young people, it would be outstanding. It would shock the principal. It would startle the teacher if you just walked in and said, you know what, today I made a bad decision, and I want to take responsibility for what I've done. 
Now, they might not be surprised if you're trying to manipulate your way out of the consequences for what you've done. They probably heard that a few times. But it would be startling, wouldn't it? It, it, it would be refreshing, refreshing, I think, to most if we, in our hour of embarrassment, having made a poor decision, instead of focusing so much on the circumstances that led up to the making of that decision, what happened in our life in times past, what the other person did that might have generated that kind of behavior on our part, we just focused on our error. We confessed our sins one to another. More importantly, we confessed our sins to God. I, I, I just want to point out again, if this is not clear, that what Jesus is requiring of us is heavy. In fact, the same way that we might have objected to the teaching of Jesus in times past, if Jesus is answering those objectives in verses 7 and 8, we might note this morning that Jesus is answering our objections to the golden rule in the same passage. You want to know how it is that you can live up to the standard that Jesus sets for us? You pray, and you seek, and you knock with persistence, with the spirit of Jacob that says, Lord, I'll not let you go until you bless me. Like an annoying neighbor that's eventually answered out of frustration, we just keep knocking. And God promises that in due time, and in accordance with his will, he will open the door. We just keep asking. And over the course of time, what we'll experience is one of two outcomes. Either God in our communion with him begins to turn our heart in a way that accords with his will and our prayers take a different course and ultimately are answered by his providence over our life or God will be pleased to grant the request as we lay it before his throne. You keep knocking and God will open the door. You keep asking and you'll receive. You keep seeking and you'll find. He is faithful and he always, always, always keeps his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and for these moments to spend together. Considering, God, your faithfulness in our life, the grace that you have shown us, Lord, the mercy that we've experienced, and your call on us to extend the same to those around us. Lord, the absence of any call to evaluate how deserving those around us are makes this passage and others outstanding. It marks us off as kingdom people as different from the world. God, we ask that you would help us to do what you've instructed in this passage we must do. I pray that you would make of us a people who keep seeking and asking and knocking. You give us eyes to see the many ways that you show up and answer and open doors in our life. God, I, I pray that you would make us a people powerful in prayer. Lord, I pray that you would move in these next moments and save the lost. God, in a gathering like this, there are those out there who don't know you. Probably even those out there who think they do that don't. God, I pray that you'd give them discerning hearts that they would examine themselves to see that they're in the faith I pray God that they would understand the full power of the gospel how Jesus transforms and changes our lives I pray that you'd save them God tear open their heart and grant the gift of faith that they might look to Jesus for everlasting life God help them to understand the simplicity of the gospel 
I, I can remember in those early days coming to church services and hearing these kinds of discussions and wondering what the practical steps looked like. Help them to understand that our salvation is all of faith, that they must only believe, turn away from their sins. God, I pray for the church that you would revive us and renew us, God. I, I, I pray that ask and knock and seek, Lord, would, would ring in our ears this week, God, that we'd be reminded of the great privilege that has been afforded us through Jesus' blood, that we might bow in humility and be brought before the throne of God. I pray that you'd make us a people of powerful prayer. I pray, God, that you'd make of us a people who pray in accordance with your will. We often focus so much of our attention on what we don't know or understand of your will when so much has been made clear. Your will is our sanctification. Your will is our participation in the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Your will is the seeking out and saving of the lost. God, I pray that as we bring these requests before you, you'd be pleased to grant them. Lord, I hope that even now as we pray together as a group, that we pray with greater boldness, having come through the blood of Jesus. And we pray with greater expectation, having received the promise of this text and so many others. Move among us in these final moments of our service. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.